you could go ahead and turn to our text for today, which is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. First of all, good morning to you. I'm sure you're uh, wondering, as you're looking up at the screen, who is that smiling, glowing face being projected at you? If you're older than 30, maybe you've played tennis or watched tennis, you might recognize who that is. That's Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi was a highly successful athlete who dominated men's professional tennis for over 10 years, beginning in the late 1980s through the 1990s. And as you can see, he had great looks. He had great style. He had loads of charisma, somewhat of a flamboyant type of guy. And when you thought of Andre Agassi, you, you thought about his flowing golden hair and that assortment of colorful head, headbands, which was his trademark. And in 1990, Agassi, Agassi, I should say, participated in a highly successful ad campaign for the Canon Corporation. A glitzy, flashy commercial, as most of them are. And uh, he was the main player, but he only said three words throughout the whole commercial. The last three words of the commercial. Got his headband on, his hair's kind of there, he takes the sunglasses down and says, image is everything. Image is everything. Then as now, individuals and companies, corporations invest tremendous amounts of time, hundreds of billions of dollars annually on imaging, branding themselves, as well as their products and their services, with the purpose and the intent of defining who they are and who, you want, who they want you to see they are. And most of them, I'm sure, would agree with Agassi, with the Canon Corporation, image is everything. This morning we're going to continue to look at this idea of image. The image is everything of Agassi and the Canon Corporation and culture in general. I am going to designate small I, little I. I will designate the little I as the image we will be talking about this morning as the big I. The big eye, the capital I, the image of God, and humans made in the image of God. 20th century anthropologist, author Lauren Isley noted, man is a cosmic orphan. He's the only creature in the universe who seems to know or be able to ask the questions, why? Why? Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask these questions, who am I? Why am I here? Where the heck am I going anyway? We're going to talk about definition, the definition of you, the definition of me. What does it mean to be human? Who or what are we? And why does it matter? What it means to be human is the fundamental question across a spectrum of issues today, particularly in the bioethics area, sexuality, gender identification, abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research, cloning, assisted reproductive technologies like IVF, getting more sophisticated every day. Just to name a few, 
Our public policy and ethical debates are consumed with what? This notion of rights. Your rights. My rights. States' rights. Government rights. And in the last 25 years, we begin to hear a lot about animal rights, even plant rights. What is this notion of rights? Where does that come from, this idea of universal rights? Why? Why is it okay to gas termites, but not our fellow human beings? What's the difference? Why not be racist? Why not hate people? What is so special about you and me anyway? I am convinced the only cognitive, philosophical, theological, rational reason or grounding for this notion of human dignity, value, universal human rights is the Judeo-Christian worldview and this idea of the image of God. Every other belief system Every other worldview, I think, comes up woefully short in providing an answer to the questions that I put to you this morning. Who are you, and why does it matter? The Book of Beginnings, Genesis, establishes this theological anthropology that I want to develop today. To answer the question, what is man? The fundamental tenet or presupposition of the Judeo-Christian worldview of man is the belief in what? God as creator. Therefore, we human beings or persons do not exist as autonomous, independent entities, but that we are sourced in God. Verse 1, Genesis 1, you're all familiar with it, read it a thousand times, begins with this grand pronouncement of God's initial creative act. All matter, all energy, the beginning of time as we know it, is proclaimed. God creates out of nothing. And then he proceeds on with the creative days of Genesis to day six. And he created man. Read with me the text this morning. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living creature that moves on the earth. Right away, we see a distinctive and unique feature of this biblical understanding of man is this teaching that man has been created in the image of God. In verse 25, we see that God created animals according to their kinds. But here's a different sense of creative activity going on. But only man is said to be created in his image and likeness. 19th century theologian Herman Bavnik puts it this way. The entire world is a revelation of God a mirror of his virtues and perfections. Every creature in his own way and according to his own measure and embodiment is of divine thought. By among all creatures, only man is the image of God, the highest and richest revelation of God, and therefore both head and crown of the entire creation. 
in verse 26. We are struck with a rather odd grammatical construction right away for communicating God's creative action of man. The author of Genesis has God speaking to, speaking in the plural. Let us. Let us make man in our image. What is this us? Why this us? Why this plural sense? The Hebrew word for God used here is Elohim. Elohim can be both singular and plural, depending on its context and structure, what type of verb it's matched to. But only here in verse 26 seems to be it is associated with a plural verb in the Hebrew. And again, the suggestion here is that creation of man is in a class by itself, distinct from the rest of the creative work. And since this type of expression is used of no other creature, we have to consider some possibilities about what this lettuce is all about. So we're going to go through these fairly quickly. One possibility is that it is describing a plurality of intensity or majesty, akin to this idea of the royal we. But this seems unlikely. Such a plurality is not really found anywhere else in Scripture. So we're going to move on to the next possibility, the concept of the heavenly assembly, the host depicted that surrounds God. Is this who he's consulting with? Is this part of the us? I think yet again we must reject this view since God has really never seen taking counsel with the angels, per se, who are themselves creatures, created beings, uh, it certainly seems to have to be a, take a huge leap to see the angels or the heavenly domain as co-creators with God. So the grammatical construction demonstrates that God is the sole actor here. He's on his creative stage, but he's not sharing the spotlight with anybody. He's the only one doing anything. To be in with the possessive R, or you are in our image, should refer to the same persons as the us at the subject of the verb. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Secondly, the verbs make and create have only God as their subject throughout the account. Again, he is the sole actor on the stage. He's not sharing it with anybody else. From a more direct theological viewpoint, though, could the concept of self-deliberation be going on here? And that's been suggested. The us as God speaking to himself, interacting with himself. God is deliberating with himself before he acts. And this interpretation is seemingly coherent with the portrayal of the oneness of God throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. The Lord, our God, is one but not as a plain undifferentiated unity, but as a dynamic and active oneness. And a number of terms throughout the Old Testament seem to speak to this personal presence and activity on earth, such as glory, voice, wisdom, word, spirit of the Lord, all suggesting, again, this internal dynamism, dynamism going on with God. It is terms such as these that maybe the New Testament writers deeply thought of in exploring the character, nature, and deity of Christ and the Spirit. The question you might be asking, is this the Trinity that's being talked about here? No, I, I, I don't want to, cannot say here that we have a clear teaching about the Trinity. We don't need to go to Genesis 1 for that. We need to go to the New Testament to fill that in and to work that out. 
what is merely hinted at here is further developed in the New Testament into the doctrine of, of the Trinity. What we do learn, though, at least at a minimum, is that God exists in some sense of a plurality. We move on to the next phrase, in our image, after our likeness, and the usage of the two significant words, image and likeness. Two different Hebrew words are used for image and likeness. They do have different meanings. They do have different applications. We're not going to go that far into it. But I do want to make a couple of points about this. This led second century theologians like Irenaeus to argue that the image and likeness are distinct, separate components of the created human nature. So we have the image and the likeness, but they're separate. They're distinct. They are not the same thing, different components of our nature. And the likeness was most likely lost during the fall in Genesis 3. So we still bear the image, the likeness is lost as a result of sin entering the world. Fast forward through the millennium up to the Reformation period in 1500s. This view seemed to be abandoned completely. There is no and, the conjunction and, joining in our image with after our likeness. The Hebrew text seems to make it clear there is no essential difference between these two. After our likeness is only a different way of saying in our image. This is borne out by examining the usage of these words in subsequent passage in Genesis. Genesis 5.1, Genesis 5.3, Genesis 9.6. Same terms are used, not always, in the, not always the exact term. Sometimes image is used, sometimes likeness is used. If these words were intended to describe different aspects of the human composition of who we are, they would not be used as they seem to be used in these texts, which is interchangeably. So, the best explanation in the image, after the likeness, refer to the same thing. With each clarifying each other, the two words together tell us man is a representation of God, is like God in certain respects. So when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the meaning is straightforward. God plans to make a creature similar to himself, not identical to himself. We aren't going to be little gods running around. We're not going to have all the same essences and character of God. But both the Hebrew word for image and the Hebrew word for likeness refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents. Therefore, to the original readers, it would seem to mean simply, let us make man to be like us and to represent us. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology puts it real simply, really straightforwardly, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. Continuing on with verse 26, which is, state, which is also restated in 28, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, there's something else going on here now immediately after the creative act. The creation of man, God delegates and confers authority to man to rule over creation. To rule as what? what is, how does he want us to rule? Be careful with that word rule. He's asking us, we are, we are to be stewards, overseers, caretakers. And this is often called the dominion mandate. So let's just stop for a moment and see if we can conclude so far from this text. What we can conclude so far about man's relationship with God 
and man's relationship to nature or the environment. And, and I would say that if you want to develop environmental ethic, a, the, a theology of the environment, this is where you still want to start. If you want to develop a theology of work and vocation, this is where you start. So what can we learn? The earth was made for man. Nature is not above man, as per se, in the Gaia Mother Earth thesis. Nature is not equal with man. In the, say, as the animal and, and animals and plants have rights too. The natural world was made for the benefit of man, for his proper habitation. We do not respect nature as a person. Nature itself does not have attributes of personhood. Our care and treatment is grounded in what? Why do we care as, over, as overseers and stewards? Our care and treatment of the environment is out of respect for the person who made it, and that is God, and our fellow image bearers. This last point is key. We must remember that God is the sovereign creator and ruler over all his creation. He created it out of nothing. Therefore, what? It's his. He owns it. It's not ours. He made it out of nothing. He is the sovereign owner. He is in control. We get to participate in some of that rulership, but it's not ours. In verse 26, we seem to then have God deliberating. And now he acts. He's going to act in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We spend a few minutes talking about this idea of repetition and parallelism. The Old Testament Hebrew makes frequent use of repetition and parallelism. Repetition is used to demonstrate what? Emphasis. Pay attention. I want you to hear this. This is significant. Similarly, here poetry is characterized by this notion of parallelism. Repetition of an idea using different, different words, different concepts. I'm going to use Psalm 19.1.2 as an example. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they, pay, they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge of God. So let's see some of these examples of parallelism here. Heavens declare, skies above proclaim. Day to day, night to night, going back. Declare the glory of God, proclaim his handiwork. Pours out speech, reveals knowledge. Same idea, just different words expressed differently. Very common throughout Hebrew and the Hebrew poetry. And this is essentially exactly what's going on with verse 27. Let's go back to that. So God created. We see created once, twice, three times. We see the repetition of in his own image, uh, in his own image, he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's kind of like he's saying, so God created man in his own image. He says, well, you know, 
let me, let, me, let me make that clear and say it again. Maybe you didn't quite get that. In the image of God, he created him. And for good measure, I'm going to come at you for a third time. Male and female, he created them. We have to see that this is a big deal. Something important. And it seems clear, at least unequivocal to me, that God created man. You can disagree with this, but your teaching is clear. Concerning the other creative works of God, earlier in the sixth day we read, and God said, let there be, let there be, let the earth, or again, let the waters. And these are statements of decree, authority. Let it happen. Let it bring forth. But with man's creation, it's different. It's different. And God said, let us make. This seems not to only be about, okay, God's authority, but God's affection for man, the apex of his creative work. Let's move to the New Testament real quickly in, in the words of Jesus. Jesus himself put the stamp of his divine authority on the creation of humankind. In his discussion with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce, he says, Have you not read that he who created them, from what? The beginning made them, what? Male, female. Jesus draws attention to the fact that these were the very words of the creator. He who created them. From the text so far, we can get some sense of what it means to be in the image of God from both this relational and representational perspective. Yet, I think we have a problem. There is a problem we have to deal with. Scripture provides no clear, comprehensive definition of what this image of God is. As theologian Carl Henry puts it, the Bible does not define for us the precise content of the original Imago Dei, Latin for image of God. Exodus, for example, gives us a definitive Ten Commandments. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There they are. Clear. Well, we have no such listing of ten attributes of God, of what it means to be in the image of God. Perplexing. Confusing. Well, let's return to my earlier quote from, to, from Wayne Grudem. He stated, The Hebrew words for image and likeness simply informed the original readers that man was like God and would in many ways represent God. He says, therefore, the scripture, from, from Grudem's perspective, the scripture does not need to say something like the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God in the following ways, intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual uh, nature, dominion over the earth, creativity, etc., and the ability to make ethical choices. For Grudem, this seems that this listing is unnecessary, and we're going to have to just make do with the generalized concept of what it means to be in the image of God and that, in a sense, a complete listing would not do justice to the depth of God's nature and the bearing, and, and us bearing the image of that nature. Also, the image of God is probably more than the sum of the parts of any list of composite aspects which would make up the image of God. Yet, 
It is through such of these aspects that I've just listed, ability, intellectual ability, spiritual nature, dominion, that we seem to be best identified as the image of God. So we seem to end up in a place where many others, where a lot of frustrated theologians have ended up, trying to figure this image thing out. Are we then forced to remain agnostic on this issue about the biblical meaning of the image of God? I go to Carl Henry again. He says, no. No. The presence of a diverse understanding of the imago suggested in Scripture provides no ground for us viewing the imago as having only a vague or indefinite content before the fall. So with that, we need to press on. We need to say, okay, let's continue to work this through and, look at, and do the interpretive task it takes of what the Bible does have to say on this subject and draw some reasonable inferences, ideas, maybe categories, of what it means to be in God's image. And we're going to do that now, and we're going to look at two categories. One is called the substantive, this idea of structure, structural view. The other is this functional view, which contains these relational and representative aspects. The substantive view would characterize the image as definitive characteristics or qualities which make up a human. Again, this reasoning, decision-making, moral and ethical capacity, spiritual capacities, and the ability to relate to God. These qualities are defined in what we sometimes call God's communicable attributes. Those attributes of the divine nature which he has shared and communicated with us. Now, there are also the incommunicable attributes he has which we don't have. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotency, those types of things. We don't share in those. He's immutable. We are not. But he has communicated some of these other attributes. Therefore, man reflects a divine nature in some way, and this particular view has dominated the Christian theology through, uh, through the years. Now, the functional view is comprised of these relational representative components, as we talked about earlier, with the dominion mandate. Those who hold this view would argue there's, there just cannot be any suitable analogy between man and God. It's just a leap too far. How do you make an analogy between a transcendent creator and a finite creature like us. What they do say, though, is there can be only be an analogy of relationship. 20th century theologian Karl Barth says, the human person is a mago day in that he or she has been created to relate with God and with other humans in community. And for Barth, as, as he was working this out, the distinction and the relationship of male and female lies at the heart of what it means to be in the image of God. Another contemporary thinker, Stanley Grenz, agrees with this and contends, ultimately then, the image of God is social reality. It's about the community. It refers to human beings and fellowship. And fellowship with what? Well, we have a three-part relationship. We have our relationship with God at the vertical level. We have our relationship with our fellow human beings at the horizontal level. And we also have a relationship with nature the rest of creation. And this view seems to be supported by the two great commandments in Scripture, to love God, love our neighbors. So this functional view is concerned with what we do, how we act, and therefore this image is rooted not necessarily just in our makeup or, or qualities, but in what we do, our task. However, 
I think we need to consider and pause, what is it about us that enables us to have relationships in the first place? It would seem the ability to engage in relationships is probably maybe an application, a consequence, an end result of being made in the image of God. For example, with respect to the dominion mandate, I think we do need to be careful not to just reduce or equate the mandate to the image of God. The creation of man occurred before the mandate, in the image, prior to the dominion command. There is some linkage here, but be careful not to make them identical. Therefore, the function of exercising dominion over the earth is probably a consequence, an application of what it means to be in the image of God. So, maybe it's the substantive view, the structural view, that is the correct view. There seems to be something in the makeup of the constitution of the image of God, is something intrinsic to who we are and not just something we do. But we have a problem here, too. We have two views. Are we required to think of the image of God as man, as, as the image of God in man as involving only what man is, not what he does? What he does, but not what he is? Or some mixture of both? Is the image of God only a description of the way in which human beings function, or is it also a description of the kind of thing he is? Some theologians will put a primary emphasis on the structural view. Others will put a primary emphasis maybe on the functional view. Herman Bavnik, I think, going back to him, I quoted him earlier, I think he puts it very well. Man does not simply bear or have the image. He is the image of God. From the doctrine that man has been created in the image of God flows from the clear implication that image extends to man in all his entirety. Nothing in man is excluded from the image of God. All creatures reveal traces of God, but only man is in the image, and he is that image totally. Soul, body, faculties, powers, immaterial, material, physical, non-physical, all conditions, all relationships. Another thinker who wrote a book called Created in God's Image, Anthony Heckema, says, it's my conviction that we need to maintain both aspects. Since the image of God includes the whole person, it must include both man's structure and his functioning. It seemingly can be one cannot function without a certain structure. Let's consider the majestic eagle soaring above. This beautiful majestic creature that we see soaring through the skies above the mountaintops and the waterways. The eagle has the functional capacity to fly and fly very well. However, it would be unable to do so without the proper structures in place that work together to enable flight. The incredible complexity of wing structure, bone structure, aerodynamic considerations, incredibly complex structures that allow this creature to fly in the way it does. Some structure, function. Similarly, human beings were created to function in certain ways, to worship God, to love their neighbor, to rule over nature, and so on. But they cannot function in these ways unless they have been endowed by God with the proper structural abilities to do that. 
the substance and abilities to do that. So structure and function are both involved. And when we think, so they're both involved and when we think of man in the image of God. As image bearers, we human beings have all the endowments necessary to represent him as well as to exhibit the relationality in which we were purposed to live, such as the endowments again, reason, self-determination, moral action, personality, onward and onward, all expressed very differently from any other animal that we are aware of. Okay, now it's time for the big word alert. The big word, ontology. What is ontology? Ontology, the Greek onto, mean being. Ology, study of. We're talking about the study of being. In metaphysics, it's concerned with metaphysics, concerned with the nature and relations of being and existence. Ontology is the study of being, of what exists, what is the nature of reality. To define things ontologically is to define them according to what their, their essence is. Essence is the attribute or set of attributes that make an entity or substance what it fundamentally is and that which it has by necessity and without it, it loses its identity. That's a mouthful. I know. But it's an important, it's an important, important word to use. And some it's, it's points I want to make going forward here. The image of God is straightforwardly, profoundly ontological. All of that we are and possess is grounded in the being the character of God. Our functional abilities or relational aptitudes are determined by this essence. Therefore, even the functional relational aspects of the image of God have these ontological implications. Something can represent God if it has certain powers and attributes with the ability for doing that, carrying out the appropriate representational activities I said earlier, it is this theistic ontology of the image of God that confers this great idea of our worth, our dignity, that we do matter, this high value of human beings. Now, for centuries in the West, at least, this biblical understanding of our of this theological anthropology I've set before you today has been the foundation of moral values, ethics, human rights. However, it is under attack and has been under attack for some time. It's under attack inside and it's under attack outside the church. Francis Schaeffer, philosopher, pastor, great Christian thinker, warned that with the emergence of the hard sciences, as the only vastly superior source of knowledge or reality, the mannishness of man, Schaefer had some quirky terminologies, but this idea of this mannishness of man, as he called it, and the essence of the, of the human person, and along with their structure and functional aspects, may be forever lost and redefined. The questions, who are you and who am I and what it means to be human, are at the heart today of a titanic clash of worldviews. Genesis 126 and 127 describe the creation of man as a deliberate, purposeful act by the divine, transcendent mind and will of God. 
Darwinian anthropology articulated under the presuppositions of naturalism and the authority of science is completely antithetical to this theological anthropology that I have put forth. The Darwinian view of man thus defines him, defines us as the product of a mindless natural process, a mindless natural process. There is no God. There is no image of God. Nature is all there is. Nature is the creative entity, if you could even use that word, create. Evolutionary biologist, paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson expresses the Darwinian view. And I think this particular quote is the best expression of what the Darwinian anthropology is. Man is the result of a purposeless and materialistic process that did not have him in mind. He was not planned. He's a state of matter, a form of life, a sort of animal, and a species of the order of primates, and remotely and akin nearly or remotely to all life, and indeed all that is material. We move on to another couple of quotes. Nature Magazine, one of the preeminent, prestigious scientific journals in 2007, and you will see these types of quotes all over. With deference to the sensibilities of religious folks, the idea that man was created in the image of God can surely now be put aside. Science is now going to tell us who we are. Science theories, scientific theories of human nature may be discomforting and unsatisfying, but they aren't illegitimate. Princeton University ethicists, very popular one at that, Peter Singer, very influential, writes, and this is a fairly long quote, so hang with me, whatever the future holds, it is likely to prove impossible to restore the full sanctity of life view. The philosophical foundations of this view have now been knocked asunder. We can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation, made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals, and alone possessing an immortal soul. He continues. During the next 35 years, the traditional view of the sanctity of human life will collapse under the pressure from scientific, technological, and demographic developments. By 2040, it may be that only a rump. That's, this is 24, 26, what are we, 26 years away. By 2040, it may be that only a rump of hardcore, know-nothing, religious fundamentalists will defend the view that every human life from conception to death is sacred. Hard view, know-nothing religious fundamentalists will defend the view that every human life from conception to death is sacred. Okay, so given these, given these views, how are we going to define man? How are we going to define ourselves? What does it mean to be human? If we're a product of physics and chemistry and the laws of nature, Who are we? Are we just a supercomputer with meat? Sociologist Joseph Fletcher in the early Joseph Fletcher in the early 1970s attempted to list some qualifications of what it means to be a person, to have humanness, personhood, if you will. And I've listed uh, five of those. 
I'm not going to go into any detail. I just decided to randomly pick about five to give you the idea of what we're talking about here and how we're going to define human beings going forward. Minimum intelligence, self-awareness. If you're curious or not, or to what level are you curious? Your change and changeability. Persons can grow into new phases of life if they resist change completely and totally. Maybe they're subhuman, subpersonal. Neocortical function, the role of the sciences. Personhood requires some type of cerebral function, brain function. If the higher brain is dead, there is no consciousness, right? No personhood there, gone. In the four decades since these criteria of Fletcher, they have become more sophisticated, more nuanced, maybe more sanitized in their presentation. Make no mistake that they have invaded culture or influencing our ethical judgment at all levels of public and private life. One other thing you must see about these is these are utilitarian in their aspects. Very functional, and I'm using functional here in a different sense than when I was talking about functional in terms of the relational um, and representative uh, standpoint. I'm thinking here of just pure function, what you do. And the thing is, with, with these five criteria, you're going to we're all going to express them differently at different times. We're all going to have different levels of these. So what are we to conclude from this? Our humanness, our personhood, who we are defined to be is going to go up and down with these capacities of intellect, skill set, one day we have a self-awareness of 10. We end up in an accident. Severely hurt, severely deformed, and maybe our self-awareness is now one. Are we now different in our humanity? Who's going to decide? Who's going to set the dial? IQ less than 40 has a diminished or lost humanity, says Fletcher. I would ask, why 40? Why not 60? Why not 80? Why not just above the IQ of Dr. Fletcher? Ethics and humanity are now becoming more relative, more subjective, developing, a, de developing depending on your ability to manifest these criteria, and they just might change day to day, moment to moment, week to week. Schaefer saw our creation in God's image bearers as foundational to everything else the scripture reveals about humans. Where we often today, many Christians start today, we want to begin with the sin and the fallenness of mankind. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 did happen before Genesis 3. And Schaefer insisted that the fall did not stop anyone from being human. After man's fall into sin, the image of God as it was intended to be manifested and lived out, was not annihilated. It is not lost. It's perverted. It's corrupted. It's marred. But the image in its structural sense is still there, and our capacities and endowments were not destroyed by the fall. What changed was not the structure of man, but the manner in which he functioned. And with that, I ask us, we need to regain a robust view of the Imago Dei.
As an essential component of the biblical worldview, it informs our complete understanding of both the purposes of God for us and what it truly means to be human. We must recapture that theology. We must capture that understanding. Then we must believe it. We must know it. We must defend it. And finally, most importantly, we got to live it. We have to live it out. And that's the challenge, to see past our functional and our utilitarian abilities and demonstrate love in the midst of the stench of our own flawlessness. God has chosen, though, the good news, the good news. God has chosen to restore this broken image in all of us. He sent his son Jesus, who was the perfect image of God. As it says in Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And it is through Christ, through the one who bears the ultimate image of God, that restoration of our perverted image can and will take place. Can and will take place. In closing, I ask you, before you judge the Joseph Fletchers of the world, before you judge the Gaylord Simpsons of the world, before you judge the Peter Singers of the world, look inside yourself. Ask God to show you where you are defining and treating people based on their utilitarian function what they do day to day. It may be a group. It may be a family member. It may be the person you're sitting right next to. It may even be you. It might just be you. Maybe you're basing your worth, your dignity, and your value on the functional criteria, intellect, skill set, talents, body image, Body parts you do or don't have. The next test, the next audition. Will I pass? Will I make it? And if I don't, who am I? Do not succumb to the small I version of the image is everything. The small I version of Agassiz, Canon, and our culture in general. Your worth and value are not defined by what you do or what level of functioning you have. You are at today, tomorrow, whatever that might be, today, tomorrow, or next week. And when it comes to the questions of who you are and who am I, who you are and who am I, and what it means to be human, it's the big version, the capital I, the big I, the image of God. That image is everything. And it matters. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as our image bearers, as your image bearers. We come before you as um, recognizing our dependence on you. 
recognizing that we are not independent and autonomous, that we bear aspects of the divine nature structurally, functionally, in a holistic sense to carry out your plan. And yes, through sin, the corruption of sin, that image has been mangled. At times, seemingly, like, where is it? But it is there. And it will be restored through the work of Christ. And we thank you and recognize that. Lord, enable us to have the courage to stand on this view of image bearers against seemingly where our culture is taking us. We must stand on this. We must be courageous on this. We must have that robust anthropological anthropological theology of who we are in you. Give us that courage. And Lord, help us not to succumb to the little eye, the little image of everything as to what we do from day to day, no matter what test we fail, what audition we may not make, what we may lose in terms of our health or our body parts or our capabilities, help us to understand we are still of great worth and high value to you. Capital I, image is everything, and it matters. <laughs>